The Lord is good. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as we continue our series through the book of Romans. You know, there are many different models and formats that movies and television shows are laid out. And if you've been here very long at all, you're probably not too unfamiliar with the fact that I have discerned for all of you that The Lord of the Rings is the greatest movie uh, series ever. And so if you didn't know that, you're welcome. Go ahead and find out now. Um, but you'll watch, uh, if you haven't watched The Lord of the Rings, if you have, when it starts, it's like there's this world that J.R.R. Tolkien has created in his imagination, and he recognizes or Peter Jackson when he made the movie, he recognizes, man, if we just dive into this story without giving context and background, people are going to start watching this story and see people that look like people but are like waist high, the hobbits, they're halflings. And they're going to be like, what's up with these people who have pointy ears and the elves? And what's up with these super hairy bearded people, the dwarves? And and you'd find yourself in this world where you don't understand. And so because of that, Peter Jackson takes the opening few minutes to give this epic monologue, retelling of the history of Middle-earth, so that where you find yourself in the Shire with Frodo, with Gandalf, with the flutes and all the merriment, really, if you haven't, check it out, that you're not just going, what in the world is going on? Another format or method that... Um, movie producers and television producers use is that of flashbacks. It's a different kind of storytelling where you find yourself just inserted into quite the opposite of what I just explained. You find yourself in something that's happening and you're kind of going like, what's going on here? What's happening? You see some characters, you see some events taking place and you begin to see a little bit of what's going on, but as the story continues, it gets to a point where the producer recognizes, okay, now we probably need to give a flashback to help everybody really full or more fully understand what they're watching, and they'll go, oh, that's why that person's mad at that person, or that's why this is going on. As we are in Romans chapter 5 today, we're going to be starting in verse 12. The apostle Paul does a flashback, so to speak, all the way back to the first three chapters of Genesis, because in the first few chapters of the book of Romans, where we have been, Paul has been laying out the problem of humanity, the problem of sin, the ungodliness of people's hearts. He's been addressing the, the different issues that even the people who, who are churched, so to speak, the religious professionals, the the uh, zealous, Judaized Christians, he's, he's addressing their hearts, their wickedness, and their sin, trying to help everyone see that they're all in the same boat, condemned in sin, unless they're trusting in Christ for their salvation. And so he now brings us a little bit of a flashback because he's laid all this out, and he's going to peel back that layer of onion once more, to go all the way back to the origin of this problem and how it began, to then also help us understand more about where we are today. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Last week we talked about justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that your word is timeless. It is true. It is powerful. It is living and active. Lord, I ask that your word would be at work in us today, that it would penetrate our hearts. Lord, I would ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see and to understand and to receive the truth. Lord, that you would transform hearts today. Lord, have your way. Give glory to yourself in the way that you work and move in our hearts and minds and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look today at Romans 5, those verses 12 through, 24, uh, 12 through 21, we find ourselves in a section where Paul is using a flashback. This flashback to kind of summarize everything he said so far, to actually further explain what happened in making the world the state that it is in. But he's also using this as a transition into the next section of this letter that he wrote to the Romans, where he's going to dive into a new focus, which is highlighting and explaining the war between the Christian and their war with sin and temptation and the flesh versus the spirit, the word, and the call to holiness. That's going to be unfolding in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Now notice what Paul has just discussed and what we just read. He talks about how Adam sinned, welcoming death, causing sin and death to spread to all men because all sinned. Remember chapters 1 through 3. You remember chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans that it's painting this really ugly, grim, sobering picture of mankind saying that mankind suppressed the truth 
in ungodliness. That, that everyone knows the truth because they see the evidence of God in creation. Their heart tells them that there is a God. Yet because of their love for sin, their love for ungodliness, they suppress the truth and worship the created things rather than the creator. And because of that, God says, okay, have what you want. Dive into your sin and find the consequences of it and find out that it's not going to fulfill you, answer you, uh, give you um, everything that the truth, everything that the creator can give. And here in chapter, uh, chapter 5, Paul gets to this origin, the core at an existential level of where did this desire come from? Because he said, here's the problem. And now he's going to say, here's why that problem even exists. I'll read it again, verse 12, Romans 5. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, meaning death came into the world through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The first thing I want to point out today is clear and simple three words, sin causes death. Sin causes death. There's an idea out there in the ether, especially among people who don't love, serve, and follow Christ. This idea that God is against fun, that God is this fun-hating prude who sits in the clouds with a magazine full of lightning bolts ready to unleash on someone who would dare to have fun, that he's just sitting there. And the idea is that well, sin is fun, and look at how much fun these people are having in their sin. So God says no to that, so God hates sin. It's like he's the, the Eeyore to our Tigger. <laughs> that we're just trying to be, oh, how wonderful it is. And, and God's like, oh, no fun. <laughs> Listen, hear me. The reason that God commands our rejection of sin, our abstaining from sin, our fleeing from sin, our resisting temptation, our turning from sin, the reason he fills us with his Holy Spirit and gives us the power to do all of those things is because he does not want the consequences of sin in your life. Sin causes death. The consequences of sin are many and heavy in so many levels, the consequences of sin are dire. They're plentiful. The name and reputation of God are defamed by our sin. That's shown throughout Scripture where, where God judges Israel for their sin, saying, how would I let my name be profaned among the nations? So our sin causes the name and reputation of God to be defamed. That's, that's one consequence. Another consequence is that our own bodies and minds are damaged by sin. Relationships, we've all felt this, right? Relationships are broken by our sin. People are harmed because of our sin. We've all seen, felt, and experienced that. That it doesn't matter if it's your favorite human being in the world. Your spouse, hopefully, if you're married. It doesn't matter if it's your best friend. It doesn't matter if it's your longest-running relationship. Sin will frustrate that relationship, won't it? Hasn't it? Sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally. Sin damages and breaks and harms 
even people we love. Here, here, if you're someone who's sitting there thinking, man, I wish Pastor Stephen would do more like topical series. Let's do less expository series through books of the Bible. I wish we could do more series like on relationships and marriage and on parenting, etc. Here you go. If you want that series, I'm going to give it to you in one minute right here. Are you ready? You want to fix your marriage? You want to fix your parenting? You want to fix your friendships, your employment dynamics, your relationship that got awkward with the coach of your kid's sports team because of that one day you got a little too parenty? You want to fix your relationship with that neighbor who for whatever strange reason comes around their trees when they're cutting their lawn and cuts your grass in this weird jagged line, making your lawn look bad to where it looks bad until you cut your grass and make it look nice and clean again. It's oddly specific, isn't it? I just assume someone in this room has dealt with that. You want to fix any and all relationships in your life? Let me sum it up for you right here. Here's the answer. Kill sin, deny yourself, crucify your flesh. Sin is the problem. Really, Stephen, are you really going to try and, and simplify it that much to say like, like all of these marriage, relationships, friendships, family dynamics, co-workers, all of these dynamics, you're going to just boil it down to that, yes. It's that simple. It's not that easy, but it's that simple. Well, wait, wait just a minute because it takes two to tango. So what if I'm like in these relationship dynamics and I'm not sinning, but, you know, like my spouse is? Because that's way more often the case, Right? Just pretend for a moment that you were not capable of bringing sin into your marriage. What would your marriage be like? If you never contributed selfishness to your marriage, what would your marriage be like? Well, but my spouse, stop, stop, stop. Just imagine how different your marriage would be if you alone, one party, never brought sin to the table. Never brought selfishness to the table. What would your parenting be like if you never got impatient? Mom, 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 mom. Yes, sweetheart. I love when you say my name that many times. <laughs> what would our relationships be like were it not for sin? Here's the beauty, the joy of even part of our eternal hope and the way that we get to invest eternal hope even into our relationships with one another. Recognizing that as long as we're here on this world, you and me are sinners saved by grace who are still being sanctified, matured, and pruned, and grown more and more into the image of Christ, which means that we still, even in our relationships with one another, have an ultimate hope for a day where sin will no longer frustrate our relationships. There will be a day believe it or not, where we don't have to think anymore about gossip. We don't have to fight against the temptation to shut that down. There will be a day where we don't have to worry or consider slander anymore, where we don't have to sit here and wrestle with, ah, I don't want to prefer them, but I know Bible tells me to, like sin will be gone. What a beautiful, wonderful day that will be, amen? The problem in relationships isn't that people don't know how to treat each other. We know that stuff. You're taught that as a kid. Share, be kind, 
Be nice. Don't call names. We all know how to treat each other. The problem isn't that we haven't learned each other's love languages, although that can be helpful. The problem is sin. So many things suffer in this life because of our sin. But none of that, as I laid out, just kind of fanned out some of those consequences, none of the consequences of sin are as great as the ultimate consequence of sin, where sin ultimately leads to, where we're going to read soon in the near future in Romans chapter 6, which you, most of you know well, for the wages of sin is death. And what we just read in Romans 5, 12, that sin entered the world and death by sin. It makes me think of a famous quote from the 17th century reformer John Owen said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Amen. I I know I grew up in and heard a lot of theology or a lot of biblical teaching that was like, well, we don't want to think about sin um, you know, you, you, you're so, if you talk about sin or think about sin so much, then you're, you're really, and I'm just going, well, we have an adversary, we have an enemy, we have flesh, we have temptation, we have devices and snares from our enemy, we have deception out there. I think scripture says that we are not to be ignorant of our enemy's devices. Scripture also calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Scripture gives us all sorts of commands about our war against sin. So often, we're wanting to see how close we can get to sin without touching it. How close can I get to that line? What can I get away with and not technically be sinning? And I think that is a, a gross underestimation of the gravity of the consequences of sin. Let's consider for a moment the way that sin killed Adam and Eve. We're familiar with the story from the opening chapters of Genesis 1 through 3, the book of beginnings or origins. God created everything and everything he created day after day. He steps back and he sa- it says that he saw that it was, it was good. Everything God made, he made it perfect, flawless, holy, good. So much so that he steps back and goes, hey, it's good. There was no sin, no sickness, no disease, nothing broken. He steps back and says, it was good. Because that's the way that God originally designed his creation. But as we know, that's just the beginning of the story. Eve is deceived and tempted to disobey God. And sin finds a way into the world by questioning what God said. Thousands of years later, the number of heresies that are out there, the number of false doctrines and false teachers and false ideologies that have run rampant throughout history and throughout society and culture and even today, our day, how many have been led astray by the core of the very same question that Eve was posited all those years ago? Did God really say? We have scripture The same heartbeat of that question comes to us today. Yeah, but I know you've got your Bible, but is that really God's word? Did God really say, can we really trust scripture? Is it really authoritative? Is it really inerrant? Is it really sufficient? Yes, it is. And if you on your free time want to go find a good YouTube video that's really the best I think I've found in nutshelling all of that, look up Vodi Bauckham. Why I Choose to Believe the Bible. Oh, it's good. 
There's a 30-minute version and a 50-minute version. Go ahead and watch both. Temptation to sin always comes packaged in a lie. Temptation to sin comes packaged in lies. Here, this will make you happy. Do this thing and it will make you happy. The lie there is that the sin will ultimately actually lead to sorrow. Scripture says sin is fun for a season. Until death, destruction, and sorrow comes. The lie is here, if you, if you tell them off, it'll set them straight and they'll be better off for it. When it actually sets your path crooked and both are worse off. Sin would lie to you by saying, here, this pleasure feels better than holiness. When the truth is that scripture says the presence of God has fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Stephen, you've just read one verse. You've read verse 12 and haven't stopped talking about since then. <laughs> All you've been talking about is sin. That's because the first five chapters of the, books of, of the book of Romans are painting a picture of our dire straits, then chapters six through eight are about to delve into that war with sin, the battle between the flesh and the spirit, and chapter five is this natural transition between those two sections. Now, notice something else here from verse 12. I'll read it again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Today, what we're really talking about are some of the core doctrines of Christianity, namely the fall of man, original sin, and sin nature. See, Paul is telling us here that sin entered the world through Adam. Death came through sin. That, that was a package deal. Remember, Adam was told the day you eat of it. He said, there's a tree in the middle of a garden. You can eat all of them except for the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't even touch it. Don't eat of it. The day you do, you will surely die. But we see that Eve takes the fruit, eats from the tree. Did she fall over dead? No. So is God a liar? Or is he gracious immediately and also something else is going on? She hands it to Adam who's with her, who failed his test of leading his, his home and his marriage by not saying, hey, no, don't listen to that lie. He was right there with her. He took and ate the fruit. They became spiritually dead in that moment. Consider for a moment a, a verse that you've heard me quote and recite many times. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice what Paul is pointing out there to the Ephesians. Adam and Eve aren't the only ones dead in sin. There's a problem. Adam and Eve did not only create sin in their own lives. The moment that they became spiritually dead, they were representative of us. They were our federal heads, is a, a technical theological terms. They were representative of us, and even beyond being representative of us, wherein their sin was imputed to us, 
their nature was corrupted by sin. They became dead in sin. They had the sin nature after that moment, and they passed that sin nature on to their kids. <laughs> Don't believe me? Turn to the next page, and you'll see Cain murder not an enemy, not somebody who was coming at him and fighting him. Cain murders his brother out of jealousy. Sin obviously was passed on to their kids and to their kids. Man, read through the Old Testament and just see the laundry list of sin, even in the patriarchs of the faith that we read about in Scripture. That reminds me, I love the girls' song that they listen to in this kids' Christian playlist that we have. Uh, the song saying, only Jesus, the chorus is literally Adam wasn't good enough, Noah wasn't good enough, Jacob wasn't good enough, only Jesus, Abram wasn't good enough, Moses wasn't good enough. I love it. It's true. There were all types and shadows of the true and better to come that is Jesus Christ. He's the only hope. He's the only Savior. The truly unfortunate consequences of Genesis chapter 3 is that that sin nature was passed on generation after generation, thousands of years down the line. That sin nature has been passed on to every single one of us. You've maybe heard me say before, this is the one time I'll agree with Lady Gaga, we were born this way. Yes, we were born in sin, which is why in John chapter three, Jesus said, you must be born again. We must be made new by the Spirit of God. The problem that took place thousands of years ago in Genesis chapter 3 is answered in John chapter 3 by Jesus saying, you must be born again. You've been born in sin. In Psalms, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Why did Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 say, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you're sitting there and you're going, well, I don't know about the sin nature stuff. I don't know if I believe that. I mean, you know, a sweet little baby. I mean, are we really going to say that they're born with the sin nature? We could pause right now. We could take a field trip and go down the kid's wing. How long do you think it's going to take us to identify sin nature? <laughs> they took my toy. He bit me. It's like, like any parent, like sin is there. The other day, my daughter went to the restroom when we were home. She came out and started doing her plan or whatever she was doing. And I said, hey, sweetie, did you wash your hands? And she said, yep. I went in the bathroom and went and looked at a bone dry sink. And I came back out and I said, hey, sweetheart, one more time. Did you wash your hands? Mm-hmm. And I said, are you telling me the truth? Uh-huh. I said, but are you really telling me the truth? Yeah, daddy, I washed my hands. Interesting. Can you help me understand why the sink is dry then? I forgot. <laughs> you lied to me. I wish you would have told me the truth and we could have just washed your hands. We all have a sin nature. Let's keep reading in verse 13 of chapter 5. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin was not counted where there is no law. Paul's not meaning here that we are guiltless without the law, that before God gave the law through Moses that everyone was without guilt. He's already said in chapter 2 and verse 12 that those without the written law are still judged by God since people still died. This shows that they were guilty. And as Romans 1 taught us, even if they didn't transgress a specific command of God like Adam did, they transgressed or sinned against the universal moral law in their conscience. Remember, he said that everyone is without excuse because the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. Every single person, whether they've heard God's law and commands or not, knows deep down in their hearts right from wrong and therefore are still accountable for that sin. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. I want to pause for a moment and explain this this concept of types or typology, types and shadows. In Scripture there, especially in the Old Testament, are many, many, many instances of types that point forward to the anti-type or the substance. For example, right now, there's a lot of lights pointing at me. And if you looked on stage, you could see a few different shadows on the stage. Those shadows would be a type of the anti-type me. The light is hitting the anti-type. And if you saw, even if you couldn't see me, let's say that there was an obstruction in your view and you couldn't see me, but you could see the shadow you would recognize that there's something more substantial and true that is causing that shadow to take place. And you could look at that shadow and you could figure out, wow, that's probably some super handsome guy. And then you would come around the corner and and have that truth confirmed. And I'm kidding. This is where, have you seen the, you remember those toys? They're not as popular as they used to be, but it was like this little square thing with all the pins in it. And you could like put your hand in it and it would be the shape of your hand. Or if you really wanted to be cool, you'd put your face in it. And if you really wanted to be gross, you would lick it. And never done that. I, seriously, that would be gross. But you, that then has the shape. That is a type of the anti-type. Paul is saying that Adam is a type of the substance that would come in Jesus, that that Adam was tested. Adam was created and, and, and put there in the garden with a test to choose right or wrong, to obey or disobey. Jesus, then we find in a garden on the night he's betrayed and he is tested, wherein he is tempted to say no and disobey God's plan. And he wrestles and he's saying, man, Father, if there's any other way that this cup could pass, if there's any other way we could do this, when he recognizes he's about to drink the cup of God's wrath for the sin of mankind on the cross and he recognizes how evil, how painful, how difficult, how awful it's going to be. And he's going, Father, if there's any other way we can do this, let it be. But then he says... Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Wherein the first Adam fails his test in the garden. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, 
perfectly passes his test in the garden and every test in scripture teaches us that there is no sin that you and I are tempted with that Jesus Christ himself did not face. That's why scripture says that we're provided with a way of escape every single time that you're tempted with sin. Can you just remind yourself, preach to yourself, man, if I'm facing temptation right now, then that means God has provided a way of escape for me. And I want to flee from it. I want to hate sin the way that God hates it, especially first and foremost in my own life. In verse 14, when Paul says that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, he's now going to unfold what he means by that. He's going to do a lot of comparison and contrast, juxtaposing Adam against Christ. We're about to see Paul lay out this beautiful juxtaposition between the first and second Adam, the one man's sin and the one man's righteous act of grace. The consequence of Adam's sin, death to many, and the consequences of Christ's death on the cross, life to many. Let's look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Adam, first Adam. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification by the second Adam. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, first Adam, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, first Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, second Adam. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, the first Adam, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Second Adam, Jesus Christ. Let me step aside right here and give my nutshell caveat on why Paul is not teaching universalism here. What's universalism? Universalism is the heresy, it's the lie, it's the false teaching that everyone is going to go to heaven. Man, I'd love to believe that, but I don't think scripture teaches that. And you can sit here going, well, he's saying it right here. All were condemned and now all are, are uh, uh, given grace through Christ. And I would say that it's simply put that those all who are in Adam are condemned. And all who are in Christ are justified. And he didn't explain those qualifiers there, but all you got to do is turn to the next page and the next page and the next page and all of Scripture. If you want to believe universalism, you just have to tear out like three quarters of Scripture. You have to ignore all the warnings. You have to ignore where Jesus said, man, wide is the way and wide is the path and easy is the way that leads to destruction. But narrow and difficult is the way and the path that leads to life. You have to ignore all those warnings of Scripture. You have to ignore all the invitations. Why is there an invitation? If everyone will universally be saved. Someone who likes to just name drop a lot and call out other preachers a lot 
but I feel like there are some who are common enough that I hear enough about that I want to put on your radar. Please watch out for Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, Carlton Pearson, and others who would tell you everyone's going to get there. We need tota scriptura, all of scripture, harmoniously forming our theology and doctrine. And you don't even have to leave the book of Romans to find out real fast that universalism is a lie. It's a deception that is meant to keep sinners in bed with the sin that they love rather than confessing, repenting, and trusting in the second Adam who made a way for our reconciliation. This is how doctrinal lies like universalism come to be. People have something that they want to believe. Paul warned Timothy about this, that in the last days people will no longer tolerate sound doctrine, but they'll heap up for themselves teachers to satisfy their itching ears and the desires of their flesh. People have something they want to believe, they want it to be true, and so they stumble upon or seek out a verse or verses that support what they want to believe, usually with a complete disregard for context and or the clear teachings of the rest of Scripture. That's how false doctrine is born. If you see an idea in Scripture, make sure you step back and go, does this agree with the whole of Scripture? And that question alone shuts down a whole lot of false teaching. Let's get back to the point. The grievous repercussions of the first Adam's sin, the imputation of his guilt upon us as our representative, it's grievous. His sin and the condemnation of his sin was imputed to us. And you could be sitting here going, well, that's really not fair. And this is a struggle we have as modern Westerners. We're not ancient Easterners who were very used to collective right and wrong rather than our Western individualistic right and wrong. But the glorious truth, you can sit here and go, well, that's not fair that, that Adam sinned and now we're in trouble for it. And I would say it's also not fair that you sinned and you get forgiven of it. This is the glorious grace of God that you could sit here and point the finger at Adam, but it goes on in verse 12 to say, and Death spread to many. Why? Because all sinned. I don't have to rehash this, right? I don't have to go back into this, right? Every single one of us knows we're not perfect, that we're guilty of sin. None of us have lived a sinless life. And therefore, all of us are under the same judgment of Adam that we are condemned to sin. Thank God. Thank God that he doesn't give us what we deserve. If you're sitting here and you're going, well, I don't deserve to be punished for Adam's sin. Well, you do deserve to be punished for your sin. Thank God that he's gracious, merciful, loving, rich, and abundant in mercy. With new mercy every single morning. If you're ever wondering, man, have I crossed that line of sinning too much where God's finally like, oh, that's it, I'm done with them. Just go out and see if the sun rose. His mercies are new every morning. The glorious truth is that in the second Adam, we are redeemed through his representation and imputation. Where the first Adam earned the wages of sin, condemnation, the second Adam gave the free gift to answer our sin, justification. 
Satan triumphed over the first Adam, bringing sin and death. And Satan was defeated by the second Adam, conquering sin through his death and conquering death as well. There are two groups of people alive in the world today. Two groups of people. Those who are in Adam, in Adam, and therefore dead in their trespasses and sins. And there are those who are in Christ, therefore alive, forgiven, redeemed, and justified. Those who are under the law and condemned for their failure to uphold the law. And those who are under grace and given the imputed righteousness of Christ. Two types of legal documents. I could hold up before you a contract. I have a contract with Spectrum Mobile for our cell phone service. We're pretty happy. We received a contract from them with terms and agreements. And they said, if we provide you with these services, you will pay us this much. And if you violate your payments, here's what will happen to these terms and services. And we said, okay, and signed our names on a legal document, a contract, an exchange of goods and services wherein Spectrum is responsible to uphold their end of the deal, and we are responsible to uphold our end of the deal. It's a contract. It's a legal document. It's a legal system. There's another kind of document that's a legal document. It's an ID, an identification. Those who are in Adam are those who are still under the contracted laws, going, here is the commands that you are obligated to uphold. And if you violate these commands, here are the consequences of your violation. And the bad news is we have all violated. The good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that when you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation and repent of sin, our position changes from being in Adam to being in the second Adam in Jesus Christ, wherein we are justified and forgiven. And Galatians tells us that we've received the spirit of adoption, where we are sons and daughters of God. And so, what we must learn is we need to change our perspective from law-abiding citizenship to joy-filled sonship. I'll wrap up with this. Many of you have probably seen this movie that I'm a little embarrassed to admit I've seen. The Princess Diaries. I can't even blame my daughters on it because I watched it before they were even born. The Princess Diaries, Anne Hathaway plays this nerdy, goofy girl. She plays this girl who's unpopular, doesn't fit in, all the things, stereotypically. And one day there's a knock on her door from the Queen of Genovia. It's a fictional place, fictional country. She knocks on the door, Anne Hathaway comes to the door, hello? in her nerdiness. And she finds out that day that she is royalty, that she's a daughter or a granddaughter of the queen. And at first she rejects it. She's like, no, are you kidding me? And then finally she's convinced. And then this grandmother brings her into her home, into her palace. It begins teaching her, hey, listen, royalty doesn't hunch like this. We stand with good posture. Royalty walks like this. Hey, royalty doesn't belch and we don't say inappropriate words and we don't snort and we don't slurp our food and here's how we do things. 
The rest of the movie is this girl learning how to be what she in a moment had become through birth. She had been away from the truth of who she was born to be. Someone comes into her life and says, hey, this is actually who you are. You now need to learn how to be who you are. This is justification and sanctification until our glorification. The moment you're saved by the grace of God, you are made right in an instant. I remember when my daughters were born, that minute I became a father. I was a father and then I had to figure out how to be a father. The next few chapters in the book of Romans is gonna be Paul talking to us about that very thing. That man, if you are in Christ in the second Adam, you're no longer under the first Adam, condemned in sin, under the law, trying to just by your willpower do the best you can. No, you recognize, man, I'm a son or a daughter of the King. And I want to live in a way that pleases him. He called us by love. And he saved us by grace. Lord, I ask today by your grace that again you would open our eyes to the truth. If there is any here who don't know you, Lord, I ask that you would help them see that truth and believe in Jesus Christ. That they would confess their sin, repent and turn from it and trust in you for salvation. God, be glorified today in making enemies become sons and daughters. Show your love, your grace, and mercy to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.